Oh, if I go completely off the rails, which is incredibly likely, <laughs> uh, just feel free to interrupt that. Hello, I'm Emperor Yuan the Seven. You, I've seen you. Let me see your face. You're the one from my dreams. Then the stars were right, and this is the day. Gods give me strength. Today we cover the Infernal City, an Elder Scrolls novel, and with me today is Gretchen. Hello. Hello. Um, how do you want me to start this? There's a number of ways we can do this, and the choice is yours. <laughs> well, um, please introduce yourself and uh, tell us about... Uh, have you got any uh, sweet rolls with you by any chance? I uh, know they were stolen. How did you respond? I honestly haven't played Skyrim in like so many years. I didn't. I that was that's far from my favorite. I think my favorite one was just to throw the sweet roll in the air and uh, try and get a sucker punch in. <laughs> I had a I had a mod that if they mentioned the sweet roll, they'd get struck by lightning and die. <laughs> Would you like to introduce yourself, Gretchen? Oh yeah. Um, my name's Gretchen. As you've stated, I. I'm a frequent guest on Talking to Women About Video Games. I am in the process of getting a podcast going with my wife, finally, that we've been planning for three years, called The Big Old Cheese. We show movies to each other that we look back and think they're really cheesy, and we like them, and we see if they hold up, and we rate them on the level of how green the cheese is, and if you know how well it's aged. Has it aged blue? Has it aged well? Or has it aged to a fuzzy green mess? Hmm. I'm not sure what we're going to do for the pilot that we're going to show other people, but uh, the first episode we're going to release is either going to be Total Recall or Robocop, ah. because his movies are perfect cheese. And like they're so of their time, but they're also so timeless. Mm, mm. I'll look forward to that then. Thank you very much for joining us here. We're also joined by the Adidjerk Prince of Producing and Editing, Daniel. Introduce yourself, please, Daniel. I'm sworn to edit your podcasts. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm Daniel, and uh, if you've listened to this show before, you know me. Uh, I'll pipe in periodically, but um, I should say we're talking about Elder Scrolls, and I'm not that versed in the Elder Scrolls lore, so I'm actually interested to hear both of your takes on on a lot of what's going on. Oh, Daniel, I'm so sorry. I'm so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we're going to talk about some really weird things here. <laughs> I have played Skyrim. I mean, what you have here is a lore book. That's what it, this is. <laughs> the Infernal City is a lore book. Pretty much. It's, it's like the, the longest lore book. One of the two longest lore books. Yeah. In the Elder Scrolls universe, they should just put it in one of the games. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty interesting. All right, I'll just introduce the series. So the Elder Scrolls is possibly the most popular fantasy game game series around. It started with Arena in 1994, and then the series just kept growing through the games Daggerfall, Morrowind, Oblivion, and then Skyrim in 2011, which just went absolutely everywhere. Uh, now, while the series does use a lot of kind of your standard fantasy tropes, there is a surprising level of depth and esotericism to the setting, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, 
Gretchen, what's your history with the Elder Scrolls series? I originally bought Skyrim with um, the sole goal originally of exploiting glitches <laughs> to um, because my, my way of putting it was I bought Skyrim because I wanted to horse up a mountain. <laughs> I wanted to use a horse to climb straight up a mountain. I was so happy with the amount of glitches and nonsense. But then I started to actually get into it. And then I was like, I found myself actually role playing because, I mean, I played Dungeons and Dragons for about a year and a half at that point. And I knew that I was hooked when I said, ah, I'll play a little bit before uh, lunch. And then I said, oh, gosh, it's it's been a little while. I should get up and actually eat lunch. And then I like, saw the sun coming up. <laughs> Skyrim is extremely Moorish. It is very easy to get lost in that world. I find it hardest to get, like, immersed in the world. No, sorry, that's Oblivion. It's the second hardest to actually, like, care mm. in my heart of hearts about, like, what's happening. But if I'm just walking through the world, then I'm, I'm gone. I'm gone in that game. Oh, yeah. My uh, most, like, mentally and emotionally immersive game, I think, is uh, Morrowind. You can pause that game. You can just stop it and then pick it up again because it's so slow. Not in a bad way. I find it just, like, as slow as life. Until, you know, you, you're able to you get your athletics really up and then you're casting spells on yourself to buff that and flying through the air and enchant your sword with damage fatigue. Oh, Morrowind. <laughs> yeah, I started with Morrowind back in the early 2000s, and I think that's the best of the series. Uh, you, you're right in that it's, you start off very, very weak. It's kind of a meme how weak you start in Morrowind. Like, you can lose a duel to a rat <laughs> if uh, you've not got the right setup, but you become so incredibly powerful by the end of the game. But I, I also, like, I, I feel like Morrowind of the... A games in the Elder Scrolls series is the most unique or has the world that's most unique because Oblivion uses kind of normal standard fantasy for most part. Skyrim goes into Scandinavian kind of mythology and that kind of thing but Morrowind feels like something completely... There are obviously elements taken from the real world but they're kind of mixed together in this weird kind of melting pot of a game. It's an extremely bizarre experience. Mm. Most of that comes uh, from Greg Kirkbride. He wasn't originally a designer for the game. He was like an like an artist or side thing, but he got so into it. He thought that the lore books sucked, so he just started writing them without like any being assigned anything and just handing them in. It's like, look, this is awesome. And then he would he was drawing concept art constantly for when they were doing Morrowind and sticking it on the walls, and he's completely insane. S slight correction, uh, Michael Kirkbride. What did I say? Greg. What? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was thinking about Greg Keyes. Yes. Michael Kirkbride. What is... I've got like six things going on in my head, and I'm multiple cups of coffee deep. Um, well, that's just me in general, though. <laughs> but no, he's insane. That's like one of the reasons he doesn't work there, from what I can tell. It's like, oh yeah, he's completely insane, but uh, we... You know, you need someone like that on the team. He he uh he still does some work for them at times. That's why Elder Scrolls Online <laughs> is my 
mm, third favorite Elder Scrolls game. <laughs> I recommend it to anyone who can uh, avoid microtransactions and ignore other people wandering around in this game that is much better played uh, solo. I actually, I got um, Morrowind... Uh, expansion for Elder Scrolls Ugh. Online. That's it. And I just played it so I could just wander around Morrowind on my own. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't interact with anyone. That is such a disappointing expansion. They like, <laughs> they didn't put anything in it. I really hope that like, since they've kind of filled the map of Tamriel out and they're gonna run out of Planes of Oblivion, just, just put things, put things in it. They made the map smaller, and it still feels emptier. I'm like, I'm literally on the edge of crying here because it's, it's Vardenfell. The mainland of Morrowind has more interesting things than Vardenfell. And Vivek's there with his crazy weirdness. Then he spoilers for the expansion of an MMO. But at the very end, he, like, the douche that he is, he just tells someone, like, Oh, you did a good job, now go fuck your wife. <laughs> so, this novel we're doing, the, the Infernal City, was published in 2009. It's set between Oblivion and Skyrim. That is 48 years after Oblivion and 150 years before Skyrim. So there's quite a lot here it can do. It's got quite a lot of space to move in. It's the first part of a pair of books. The second book being The Lord of Souls. I'm going to correct you there. Mm? It's the first half of a book that was chopped in half <laughs> for no good reason. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I got to the end and I was like, this is... This is more than a cliffhanger. This is like, like, what, what else? What's, what's next? Like, <laughs> it just stops. Mm -hmm. It just stops. It yeah, just stops. Spoilers for the end of the podcast, but it just stops. <laughs> so the author is, uh, as we said earlier, Greg Keys. He's got a lot of experience doing his own original work in sci-fi and fantasy, but he also does lots of licensed properties, uh, like I saw Star Wars, Babylon 5, and Godzilla, among many others. Now, his Wikipedia entry notes his knowledge of fencing and linguistics, which does come through in the book, and he also has a background in anthropology. Uh, he grew up in an Arizona Navajo reservation, and I think that makes him a really good fit for the Elder Scrolls universe. He brings in a lot of heavy themes of like cultural mixing and exploration and people from uh, very different backgrounds meeting each other. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I, I felt it like it felt like one of the best Elder Scrolls lore books, because that's that's kind of half of what an Elder Scrolls experience is, is people yelling, like, slurs at each other. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, for people who've never played Morrowind, uh, there are, like... They make a fine rug, cat! You inwa! Yeah, people will just insult you with fantasy insults all the time. And this book, indeed, has lots of um, fantasy swear words as well that come up as well. I think one of them, I don't even know how to pronounce it, is like Zhuth or Zuth or something. 
in any case, I, I, that brings me on. I will apologize in advance for my pronunciations of the various names. There's a huge variety of linguistic influences here, so I will not be able to get it all right. And most of it, I probably won't be even close. So on, on that note, I, I want to say that I actually, you know, when I was trying to track down a copy of this book, I found that I could get it on Audible for free because I had a free trial. So I had kind of, it was effectively like a podcast uh, <laughs> being read to me of this uh, whole book where there was lots of pronunciations. That is how I experienced it uh, the first time, which was, say, like eight years ago. And then I listened to it twice for the podcast, once at 1.7 times speed. I genuinely was able to take in the whole thing the first time mm. because it's fairly straightforward. Yeah, for me, it was interesting because the narrator actor uh, did a great job of... Oh, he's amazing. You know, doing inflections of, of all the different characters. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what goes into that, but he, he nailed it. I think he, he must have played the games at some point because he gets the, the sounds of all the races, especially for the time that it takes place before, before the Dunmer become Australian in, in the Skyrim. I don't know what <laughs> happened there. They went from being like weird samurai to being fake Australians. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Dunmer got done hard by um, what they decided to do with the series after Morrowind and Oblivion. <laughs> also, a, a note before we begin with the synopsis as well, I won't necessarily be covering everything. I'll be sliding over some parts for brevity. I might rearrange some stuff around, particularly as we get towards the end and the perspectives start to more rapidly change around. I kind of um, rearranged it so it's it makes a little more sense. What I find in general with this book is that the plot is straightforward. Trying to take the author's descriptions of various details of this world and summarize it and put it in my own words very difficult <laughs> and there are parts is again especially towards the end i'm not completely sure i actually understand what the author was trying to get across uh, i don't know if you two had the, any problems like that it just felt like a lore book it's just here's some things that happened at this time period that coincidentally affect each other <laughs> and again i was fine with that the first time I, I listened to it i was playing morrowind and i felt totally fine with that because in my you know role play thing i was just reading that while i was you know going for a walk because if you're strolling through vardenfell you can just have a lore book with you yeah pull another volume out of your haversack <laughs> yeah i i kind of took this book as sort of you know, like a vertical slice of the Elder Scrolls world, you know, there's just uh, descriptions of magic and alchemy and Oblivion Gates and stuff just periodically peppered in like, okay, now we're talking about the Daedra for a little bit. And, you know, now we're going to be talking about the political intrigue of the different factions. And uh, you just get like a little bit of everything um, in a narrative form, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Something that I just one more thing with that, just a little bit of peppers and things like that. I, I put a lot of time in, in Elder Scrolls Online, and I just remember that they'd be like mentioning some event that, you know, recently happened, or they're in a location where something happened long ago, and I'm just thinking, oh yeah, I was there! <laughs> like, I'm excited like I'd actually been there. I'm a little bit invested in this world. 
Indeed, indeed. There are nice bits with the papering aspects from the games. Admittedly, they have to be somewhat vague because the protagonist of the games is supposed to be that kind of blank slate. So they have to talk about events like they'll talk about the Oblivion Gate being closed in Kavach. Uh, but they can't say who closed it because the person who closed it is the player who could have any personality. <laughs> so, um, but it is nice they have references. Yeah, I was really appreciated that. Although I was a lot of the times I thought to myself, like, I didn't close that gate. I don't care. <laughs> but why would I do main quest? It's an Elder Scrolls game. Well, if you didn't close it, then uh, some other uh, NPC came in behind you and closed it before the events of the book. There's actually a mod for Daggerfall now that you can uh, have some other person, like some NPC script, just do main quest for you <laughs> so you can enjoy the game. <laughs> So we start with the prologue where Sul, who is a dark elf, also known as a, a Dunmer, is woken from a prophetic dream of a ship's crew at sea dying after the sudden appearance of some unknown otherworldly object. Now, Sul seems to have the vision because of Azura, who is a Diedrich Prince. The Diedrich Princes are kind of difficult to explain. They're kind of gods and kind of demons, they have certain spheres of influence. Azura, for example, being transition, change, twilight, that kind of thing. Some of them are more quote-unquote evil than others, like the Prince of Destruction is obviously going to be very opposed to mortality, but then others like Azura are more morally ambiguous. So that's who the Diedrich Princes are. Now, in the room with Sue is also a, a book about the adventures of a Prince Atribus, and Sue takes this as a sign from Azura again, like the vision, and he rides off to adventure. Unfortunately now, having had that prologue, we're not going to see Sue again for a while. <laughs> yeah, when he popped back up again, I was like, I was like, wait, is this the first I've heard of this guy? <laughs> it had yes. been so long. I've been through the book three times and I went through it twice in a row and I had the same reaction. I forgot that this happened. I forgot that it happened until you mentioned it now. So instead now we meet Anig, who is a 17-year-old human living in the Black Marsh. And also we meet her Argonian best friend, Mir Glim. Now... The Black Marsh is the home of the Argonians, who are an amphibious, lizard-like people. It was once under control of the Empire, which is based in the human country Cyrodiil, but since Oblivion and Morrowind, it's been reclaimed by the native Argonians there after the Empire began collapsing. Now, Anig's father was allowed to remain in the country, but he's falling on increasingly hard times. So that's kind of our setup for these two. Now, Anig is kind of the adventurous type, and Mirglim is kind of her reluctant, or sometimes reluctant, partner in not quite crime. We get a glimpse of an adventure. Anig convinces Mirglim to help her hunt what she thinks is a weird crocodile but turns out to be a drug-smuggling gang. Easy to mix those two up. Well, especially in an Elder Scrolls game, you, you generally set off on thinking, oh, this is going to be so cool and exciting, and it's just some guy who comes at you with a sword. 
<laughs> a surprising amount of quests in and stories in the Elder Scrolls essentially boil down to drug smuggling gangs. <laughs> Never should have come here. Especially with the Khajiit. I think that that kind of boils, that's what, that's what most adventurous events in reality end up being. If something seems really crazy and exciting, there's probably someone on meth involved. <laughs> that's what Breaking Bad taught us, yes. Yeah, Florida man as well. <laughs> yeah, you want you want to watch out when they have a, a reaver in the gang. <laughs> so we also uh, the Anegan Mirglim also discuss rumors of some kind of floating island which is approaching the Black Marsh from over the sea. Now we also meet Colin, who is going to be another one of our protagonists. Although we spend the least amount of time with him, he's doing an entry test for the Penitus Oculatus. The emperors, spies, bodyguards, assassins, investigators, kind of a secret service. His test is he has to assassinate someone only knowing that they're marked to death by the emperor. We get this tiny chapter of Colin and then again he as well disappears for quite a while. (laughs) Just to be a nerd here, I believe that that would be Latin for the eye of punishment. Or the eyes of punishments? I'm not sure on the plural singular thing. Mm, I can see that. Penitus oculatus. That makes sense to me. I mean, that makes sense for, for a cop organization. Colin is, he's observing and and uh, punishing. <laughs> punishing with extreme prejudice. <laughs> he is the law. So the Argonian people have a connection to what's called the hist which is sort of a gigantic sentient tree network, which I think is not what it is, but is a fairly accurate, you know, it's not accurate, but we'll go with it. They also suckle from it. Yeah. Like a big woven teat. (laughs) It's a bit weird, (laughs) but think of it as like, um, it's kind of like a plant overmind that the Argonians are kind of, have a psychic connection to. Mirglim notes that the tree in their town, Lilmoth, where he and Anig live, seems to be perhaps going rogue. Um, It's acting very strange, which is very unusual for individual trees to do that. But Glim is kind of too acclimated to imperial ways he feels that he's he doesn't have that deep connection and he doesn't really understand exactly what's happening he he speaks to a priest who says vague warnings of the approaching floating island and says it was removed from another world and anig naturally wants to make a potion to allow them to fly up to the city (laughs) i apologize if i'm not explaining the hist very well um i i like I said, this... I don't know that the games explore, explain no. the hist very well. I don't... Anything ever can explain the hist very well. No, that's the thing. I do not remember it from the games at all. The, uh, the Argonians don't really get much of a focus in the games. <laughs> but uh, they certainly do in this book, which is, is nice. So there, there are aspects which are very nice. You get, like, um, one of the things that the author does make a note of is his body language, which is very different from human body language and uh, kind of shows like Anig knows how to read him and uh, that kind of thing but it does make a point that he is definitely not human he's definitely a different species 
The hist is also related to the gender fluidity and you know physical sex of the the Argonian race. So. Yeah, I had forgotten about that because they change gender like halfway through their lives. Is that correct? Yeah, they to go from the UESP, which is the standard source for all of the madness. It is said that upon exiting the juvenile stage of life, an Argonian will lick his sap from the tree's bowl, I don't know what that means, B-O-L-E, in order to stimulate the hormonal glands, which will cause them to sprout sex organs, which is a bizarre way of saying that. I guess it's involved with a tree. I However, this is unconfirmed. Everything's unconfirmed. And Argonian hatchlings <laughs> may apparently be of any gender. Argonians can ask their hist tree to change their gender, which is typically followed by a celebratory mazel tov. I didn't know they could do it, like, willingly. I thought it was something that automatic. Argonians are very much beyond me. None of this is really in the, in the games. Well, it comes up in ESO a few times, I think. Are the Argonians, are they um, a playable race in Morrowind and Oblivion? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, they're um, in Morrowind, though, there's the fact that throughout the country of Morrowind, it's largely on Vardenfell, there's a lot of slavery for the, the beast races, as they're called, uh, Argonians and Khajiit. After the events of Morrowind, Argonia actually invades Morrowind, and uh, there's a lot of bad blood between the Dark Elves and the Argonians, too put it uh, succinctly, uh, for various reasons, most of which I'm on the side of the Argonians for because they were kind of enslaved. And when I say kind of enslaved, I mean they were very enslaved. Um, Anig is a talented alchemist, though she, again, fits with her personality. She's kind of foolhardy in her experiments. Uh, we learn one of her previous ones was supposed to turn Mere Glim invisible, Instead, it turned his skin translucent. <laughs> we get a description of how alchemy works in this world, and I do like how the author has it reflecting how alchemy works in the games, where you kind of have to match ingredients based on their magical properties, and more knowledgeable alchemists are able to identify more properties. And I do like this. I think the author does a good job with that here. There's a lot established in the details of the book, considering how much weird nonsense there is involved in every individual thing. Mm. Although there is a lot of, um, you know, glossing over and retconning and unretconning and reconning uh, going on at any given moment in... Uh, Elder Scrolls. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with Elder Scrolls, and I remember you've talking about this before, that it doesn't really have an established continuity. It uh, It's more of a consensus thing, even in-universe. Um, anyway, Anig's father suddenly announces he sold their house and used the money to hire some goons to take Anig to the Imperial City. This is not as bad as it seems. Anig seems to recognise he's doing this to protect her from something. She doesn't want to go, but she doesn't really seem to be that offended by being kidnapped. It's a little odd here. Pretty much everything's a little odd, of course, mm. but <laughs> that's one of the many confusing aspects of... I was going to say Anig's motivations, but I don't know what her motivations ever are. She wants adventure. 
Yeah, but I don't know what adventure means to her. I, I think... I don't know what adventure meant to her. I think she's supposed to be, like, a young girl that, like, you know, is kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen next, and, you know... I, I think this is um, skipping ahead uh, a little bit, but I, I think overall the character arc that Anig and Treb later share is kind of they're seeking a sense of purpose. They're trying to find out what their role in is in this world, and you see the two of them like Treb starts to finally learn what it means to be a prince, and Anig uh, kind of comes into her own as a alchemist come cook i'll get into that later but very much towards the end she has a moment where she she thinks that she could just stay on umbriel the floating island in her new role uh doing this very magical cooking but then decides to reject that but you, you get the sense that she wants that purpose she wants to have a role so she uh, either started her third character uh, or respect. <laughs> well, I, I I would say it more like she started off as an alchemist starting class and then power leveled that really heavily. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking more of the RSP aspect where you just like you wander around and you have no idea what you're doing oh, and then you yeah. break a character <laughs> and then you uh, start over with a new character and you do that three times and then now you've learned how to play a Bethesda game. <laughs> I was doing the Doylist explanation. You were doing the Watsonian. I I don't I don't know. Oh, um, <laughs> it's a Sherlock Holmes thing. It's like when people have questions about the Sherlock Holmes story, you can either answer from a perspective in universe of Doctor Watson, or you can answer from the author's point of view. Like, why did the author do that? Ah, <laughs> I see. I, I don't know anything about Sherlock Holmes except from what was on uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> well, he was very good at getting Dr. Watson to ejaculate, which I remember he did quite a lot. <laughs> I just had to... I just had to hold in my laughs because I didn't want to spit all over my phone. <laughs> I didn't know... I, I knew you were going somewhere with that. I didn't think it was going to go all the way there. <laughs> It's um, in the sense of Dr. Watson going like, good Lord, Holmes. You know. <laughs> ah, I see. Yes, literally. But the, but the word is not used literally. quite a lot <laughs> oh, yeah. in the, the novels. I... And it's uh, to a modern uh, reader, it's uh, a little um, suggestive. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that was excellent. <laughs> we'll have to edit that down to something usable. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Daniel. <laughs> so... Um, Anig uses, she has an enchanted metal sparrow, which is kind of like a locket she wears, and then she can use that to essentially make like a video call to whoever has the sparrow, so she can send it to find someone and then she can speak to them. Uh, she sends it to contact Glim. The goons take her onto a ship, but of course, Glim, being an Argonian, he's a very good swimmer, and he's able to rescue her pretty easily. They have a brief encounter with a sea drake, which I've never found in the games, and I wish they did, because most you get in the games is mud crabs and fish. But a sea drake, that would be something. It seems a lot less deadly than slaughterfish, which it takes one tiny one to completely destroy you at any level. Yes, the slaughterfish are vicious, and they're not even very big, but uh, 
you can be like at full tilt doing an Olympic level swim and they can just bite you once and that's it. You're stopped and then they'll just go nasty things. It's the kind of thing that keeps you uh, on the land, right? Uh, It's like a a boundary. Well, until you get water walking, Mm. in which case you can just break the game. Or you're Argonian (laughs) and then you can just breathe. (laughs) underwater. So Anig and Glim make it back to the shore. They now see the floating island for the first time. It's sort of like an inverted mountain where the base of my mountain would be. There's kind of a very elegantly architectured city on top of it. This is one of the things where I'll try to explain what's happening. The city is kind of dropping down these kind of long strands of light that look like spider silk. And they seem to be collecting something from the ground and taking it back to the island. But there's also like swarms of huge insects are coming from the mountain constantly. And also coming along the ground with the city is something which Glim and Ani can't see at the moment, which is making a hell of a lot of noise, howling and screaming here. Does that description make sense to you? How do you feel about that? It sounds accurate, but I don't know that it makes sense. Mm. It also sounds like something cooler than anything that is in any of the games. (laughs) At this point, Glim goes a bit weird and starts speaking things like he needs to go back, back to start over. But Anik notes that he's using a very obscure language here and she's not entirely sure what exactly he's saying. It can have many different interpretations. And again, that's a, the uh, author's linguistics background coming in on it, which is, I thought was a very nice touch. He's also compelled Glim to begin walking. Now, that howling and screaming thing on the ground is coming closer. So Anig just kind of makes Glim take the levitation potion, takes it herself, and then they fly up to the floating island. At this point, Glim then comes to his senses. He says Hist was taking control of him. They look down and they see there's a huge crowd of, uh, for lack of a better term, zombies. I think it does actually use the phrase the walking dead. It does. Uh, It says walkers. Mm. They call them walkers once and I chuckled lightly and cringed heavily. It would have been right about the time the Walking Dead series started. (laughs) So, yeah, you have this kind of various species, Argonians, humans, various sea species, uh, walking with the city. They're killing everyone in their path, and then the strands of light are taking something from the people who are dying. We find out later it's their souls. And then the giant insects fly towards them, disappear i think the giant insects are possessing them and that's what's causing the dead bodies to rise up and join the army i think that's what's happening but again the author kind of assumes we kind of know what's going on with this at times i feel well the games do that too the games assume that you know what's going on even though it's completely impossible (laughs) for you to know that because they don't know Anig and Glim explore around some caves and paths around the lower end of the inverted mountain, but they're finding that people are looking for them. So Anig sends the mechanical sparrow I mentioned before to go find Prince Atribus, who is like a famous hero in the setting at the time, so she can tell him what's happening. 
I'm kind of picturing her bird as Bubo the Owl from uh, Clash of the Titans. I was just thinking that myself, actually. Yeah. I pictured that, but also like a transformer that turned into a locket. Mm. Well, it's kind of two pieces because you've got the locket and the bird. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like, it could be like it comes out of the locket. Like, it's like a... Like, it has to do something so that way the person with the bird can see back through. True. So it has to be like going... And turning into something. I think they mention it's a, it's a Dwemer. That's the Elder Scrolls version of the dwarves artifact. Which makes sense, but again, we've never seen anything like this in the games, but it's a nice little touch. (laughs) So, they meet a denizen of the island, who seems friendly enough, but he's deeply confused to meet people not from the floating island. He takes them to the Midden, which is a gigantic trash heap filled uh, with all sorts of horrible things. It's emanating thousands of smells, mostly revolting, but some oddly pleasant. And I find this a very nice allegory for the internet. (laughs) So they're told that the island, which is called Umbriel, is harvesting souls for something called the Ingenium, which powers Umbriel and keeps it aloft. But it also seems that people there, at least the lords, the upper class of Umbriel, also use the souls for some kind of sustenance for food. An Egan Glimmer captured by I'll try this one. I'm going to go with Quine. It's Q-I-J-N-E. Yeah, I don't remember how this one was pronounced, actually. <laughs> Once you get into a lot of the, the Umbriel characters, I I kind of stopped trying to distinguish them. I don't want to call her Quidgney, <laughs> because that's <laughs> kind of... She's supposed to be a menacing character, and uh, I feel Quine is more menacing than Quidgney. Quidgney sounds like a bard. Like, that, that you need to kill. There's a mod to kill every one of the bards in the bard quest line. <laughs> if they only had more songs instead of you hearing the same two, basically. If only they could sing. True. That's another thing in ESO. The bards are great, and the, but you, you can't buy a CD of that. And I would, I'm just, I'm, it's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's good. <laughs> a Negan Glimmer captured by Quine, who is the head chef for one of Umbriel's kitchens, which appear to be a very big deal in this society. Quine has an invisible, super sharp blade that seems to come from her wrist, but is invisible most of the time. And Quine is perfectly happy to use this to kill people. Now, she wants information from an Egan Glim about the new cooking ingredients coming to Umbriel from the land below. And at this point, we reach a section, which is going to be a large part of this book now, of Anig's Kitchen Nightmares. <laughs> a surprising amount of this book is now about cooking. Two things here. Most of this book is walking and cooking, <laughs> which honestly describes a few of my runs of multiple Elder Scrolls games. <laughs> if you do like want to invest heavily in alchemy, this kind of um, does certainly reflect that aspect of the games. Just walking around, picking up ingredients and being like, oh, I wonder what this does. I'll just make a random thing from this. 
Yeah, at this point, I was getting the impression that Anig and uh, and Glim were NPCs in a different character's story. So I guess probably Etrobus's Et- story, mm, who we haven't actually met yet. Yeah. <laughs> so the kitchen they go to—it's a vast place, all kinds of creatures and species, countless cooking implements. It, it seems that people from Umbriel can't leave the city without becoming, like, insubstantial or losing their physical form. But the walking dead below uh, can bring the city plants and animals and that kind of thing. The lower lords and inhabitants of Umbriel require physical food, but the higher upper class lords prefer souls or souls like cooked into vapors and perhaps like the essence of flavors of things mixed up in incredibly complex ways i recognize i'm not quite getting across here what what i think the author is going for but again it's like cooking is a big deal it's like you go to that rest a restaurant where instead of serving you food they kind of serve you it's like they don't give you ice cream. They bring out milk and they pour it across sugar, uh, uh, you know, some dry ice and it, it bubbles and it comes out looking kind of like ice cream and it doesn't taste good. And then when you order coffee, they come out with like a chemistry set and it blurps out some <laughs> farts and like uh, whatever that whatever that is called. And you pay a million dollars for this food that doesn't taste good. They have a uh, deconstructed soul juice. Yes, yes. If you think about like that, like really fancy, really, you know, out there restaurants and then take that another few levels up, <laughs> you kind of get what um, the people of Umbriel like. And uh, the lords themselves are very capricious. They demand constant novelty on penalty of death. And the new flavors coming from the land below are kind of shaking up the flavor market in big ways. So Anik's uh, assigned to work with a woman, Sleer, and Glim is taken away elsewhere, which is actually a place called the Sump, which is a very kind of underwater area in Umbria, or kind of internal lake, I guess you'd say. But there, Glim's ability to breathe underwater is very much valued. I don't know that how much I'd want to be breathing that liquid, but <laughs> thankfully water breathing is a, it's a spell slash talent, so maybe, maybe you're not actually having to breathe the scum and piss. To be honest, given how the lower levels of Umbria are described, Aside from the dead bodies in the water, it sounds like the cleanest place. <laughs> At this point, I was kind of thinking this uh, story was going in like a Star Wars New Hope direction because you got a floating city that arrives and spells doom for the local population. Um, and then you have a, an intrepid group of people jump on board. They sneak on board and then they uh, end up in a trash area and then they spend weeks working in a kitchen. Oh, oh wait, no, I guess that didn't happen in Star Wars. <laughs> I, uh, okay, just a quick question to try and pretend that we can use logic on this. Mm. How did this society develop between the game Morrowind and now? Isn't that like 60 years? 50? I think 48. I think. Yeah. How did... <laughs> How did this multi-tiered, interwoven feudal society build up and where people don't 
have any... I, I, uh... I, I would say I will defend it. I will defend it. Give me a chance. The kind of thing with Umbreo is that... I was going to mention this later, but people aren't born as babies. They kind of are... They are grown and then are, like, fully grown. So all the people you see were never, like, children. They were... All the people in Umbreo are just created as adults. And life is very, very cheap there. Like, um, they mentioned it at one point that, like, being able to survive half a year as a head chef is regarded as, like, average or something like that. Okay. Also, I mean, I guess it does kind of sound like uh, Kitchen Nightmares then. <laughs> the the sump that uh, that Glim goes to, that's it's sort of like a reincarnation pit, mm, right? Mm. And the people working there as well, they have to breathe the special vapor to be able to work underwater and breathe underwater temporarily, which is why Glim's so important for them, because he doesn't have to do that. But, like, they're constantly coughing up blood. So I, I kind of feel like this is, like, this is a society that's kind of evolved itself very, very quickly because everybody down there is, like, got a life expectancy of, like, a year. Yeah, if that, I, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, I guess, but, like, it's, I mean, I'm trying to apply real sociology to this situation, which is absurd. <laughs> I'm the absurd one. I, I, a life expectancy of a year and coughing up blood, we're back to kitchen nightmares. I was gonna say, you could imagine whoever's in charge is, uh, you know, when they first were creating this flying city, they were collecting souls and creating people and just saying, this is your job now, go do that. And then they just, you know, had enough effectively automatons that it's built into a stratified society. Yeah, this could be like 50 generations down the line. Yeah. Potentially. I suppose it doesn't take that long for a corporation to become a massive corrupt machine that uh, <laughs> churns people out and has uh, ridiculously powerful people on the top that eat souls. Yeah. I mean, Jeff Bezos built that in less time than Umbriel's been around. <laughs> Um, Umbriel's nothing compared to Amazon and the amount of souls it <laughs> scoops up and eats. So we now meet um, we now meet one of our other protagonists. Finally, we meet Prince Atribus, uh, who is back in the Imperial City. He is something of an adventurer and playboy. We're introduced to him where he's sparring with a woman, uh, Radassa, and he easily defeats her. And then he inducts her into his personal guard, and then. Of course, he sleeps with her. This is initially, a, I was a little concerned about this, but his storyline actually goes in a, there is a reason why he is portrayed as this kind of like, I really find him a very unpleasant, cocky character, but the book is actually smart. <laughs> it's going somewhere. I too found him kind of an unpleasant cock. <laughs> Atribus, who is called Treb for short, is met by Ku the um, little mechanical sparrow, and Anik begins to tell him about the city. Treb goes to his father, the Emperor Titus Mead, to tell him about Umbriel, but the Emperor already knows about the existence of the city, and he's unconcerned. The city seems to be moving through the Black Marsh towards Morrowind, and the Emperor doesn't see any point in intervening unless it's actually heading to somewhere still in the Empire. So Tread decides to take his personal guard to disobey his father and go to Umbriel himself. Well, that does honestly sound like something 
that perfectly accurate to what an, an emperor in that universe would do. Empires always kind of seemed like the opposite of Rome. They they come in and they destroy all of the infrastructure. That's the thing. Like Titus Mead is not presented like as like the wise emperor that you saw in perhaps Oblivion. He's very arrogant and he's quick to boast about his his martial prowess. He's, he's like, I took the imperial city with less than a thousand men. Compared to how Patrick Stewart's rendition of the emperor in Oblivion, who is kind of very wise and almost um, uh, sagely. This is an emperor who's very much like third century Rome where everything's falling apart and you've just got a bunch of dictators charging in and killing each other. So he's a, he's a bit of a fail son. Well, not Titus Mead, but uh, Treb. Treb is definitely a fail son. Well, they, they could be like a, a series of fail sons uh, one after the next, Treb being the latest fail son. Mm. He's a fail son by design. <laughs> if Patrick Stewart's emperor is actually sage-like instead of simply eloquent, I think he might be the good emperor instead of, you know, just turning on a giant mech and then killing everyone moderate and under in uh, loyalty to him. I'm sorry, I, I don't have good feelings about the Empire. I'm very invested in this world. Mm -mm. <laughs> <laughs> Atribus and his guard leave the Imperial City, but they're quickly ambushed and nearly everyone is killed. Treb is captured and it turns out the betrayer is Radasser. She was ordered to kill Treb, but she's decided it's more worthwhile to fake his death and then sell him later. Meanwhile, Anig is a natural in the kitchen. She's using her chemical skills to make wondrous new dishes. And she's also secretly collecting ingredients for another levitation potion while trying to find some way to contact Glim again. We go back to Colin, who's investigating the aftermath of the ambush on Treb. He finds a headless, very carefully burned supposed body of the prince, and he finds it a little too convenient. Now, at this point, I'm not sure what he's doing. It's like necromancy or conjuration but I don't think it's explicitly described as magic but he starts speaking to the ghosts of the dead guards who kind of tell him about Umbriel. Gretchen what did you think was going on here? I just think it was the author not fully understanding how magic works mm. because frankly if you play multiple Elder Scrolls games you can't possibly understand how magic works. <laughs> because it doesn't work the same ever. <laughs> That's true, and the authors just kind of invented a new way for it to work in this. Uh, and I mean, but I thought that was a pretty interesting, uh, you know, if you just follow, okay, this is the logic of this, then sure, and, and that was an interesting way for like a cop to, you know, investigate the scene mm -hmm. of the crime just talk to the dead bodies and it, they know what happened. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, dead bodies are a little confused since they're really quite recently dead. He doesn't find out very much, just that they were going to do something about Umbriel. And also there's kind of hints that um, Treb disobeying his father was part of the game. We'll find out more about that very shortly. So Treb's being taken south to elsewhere, uh, not spelt as in English, spelt fancy like, 
but it is called elsewhere, which is the home of the cat-like people, the Khajiit. Now, the Khajiit are very memeable, <laughs> being cat people, of course, and we get quite a lot of... Uh, the author seems to like them as well. We get some details on the cats, and there's some interesting things like the cat people seem to be riding these giant cat-like mounts, uh, like horses. But then it turns out that those giant cats they're riding like horses are actually Khajiit as well, and even related to some of the ones who are walking and talking. I had one of those in ESO. Um, I decided that it was my cousin, mm. and... Uh... I really wish that he could have been used to attack. That would have been so awesome. Is this the only time that we've been to elsewhere canonically? ESO goes to elsewhere. Outside of ESO. Oh, okay. Outside of ESO. Yeah, the ESO, there's two regions of elsewhere, which they sell separately because of course they do. <laughs> of course. I, I just know that there was a mod for Skyrim that you could get elsewhere levels. Uh, I think it was a user-created mod. It sounded kind of interesting. Well, of course it was a user-created mod. It was good. <laughs> um, so Treb seizes his first chance to escape and yields Redasser again, but this time she effortlessly defeats him. And then she tells him essentially his life is a lie. His supposed adventures are kind of carefully choreographed distractions arranged by his father. His personal guards were not his friend, and in fact, they didn't really like him very much. In reality, he's an awful sword fighter, has no idea what he's doing, and this is kind of an open secret among certain parts of the palace. We find out later that one of his childhood friends was in on the secret from the age of, like, six. I was going to say, like, this guy's, like, Donald Trump Jr. if he deliberately tried to create Donald Trump Jr. Mm. Which is an awful thing to do, and nobody should ever do that. I don't know that anybody could be that awful in any video <laughs> game, because I don't know that anybody would want to write anybody that awful. <laughs> uh, like, well, except for Yoko Taro, or uh, whoever made Pathologic. Mm. Pathologic is one of the few games which I think is very, like, Morrowind. It has that kind of deeply weird setting where you can get so engrossed in it. But I'm digressing myself now. <laughs> so the rest of the populace are kind of fed stories of uh, Prince Atribus's adventures, essentially to boost the Imperial image. And Treb is naturally horrified at this, and then slowly, as the book goes on, he starts to accept it and realize it's true. I like how a little bit later in the story, uh, he reveals that he has multiple biographers uh, who are, I assume, bards that uh, tell his tales. Then I'm just like, what is going on with this guy? <laughs> that he, he just has these like people in his employ that are just like, I'll tell whatever crazy story you want. Honestly, that isn't that far off from any particular celebrity. Mm. I mean, look at the amount of quote-unquote autobiographies that any person who's famous for absolutely no good reason mm. has put out and how accurate those are. This is one of the most true-to-life aspects of this book because <laughs> it's so unbelievably stupid. Yes, yes. Now, at this point, we've all forgotten about him, but Sewell reappears and rescues Treb from his captors. He wants uh, Treb to take him to Umbriel. Sewell has some kind of beef with the city, 
but he needs Treb and his connection to Anik to know where to actually find the city. So speaking of protagonists we all forgot were there, Colin is back again <laughs> and tells the Emperor he thinks Treb is alive, but uh, strangely the Emperor had no idea about this latest adventure. The head of the guard is supposed to pass that information on to the palace, who pass it on to his father, and it ends, it's all carefully arranged so Treb is never in any danger. But this time the news never reached the Emperor. A conspiracy is afoot. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so it seems Anik, meanwhile, is too successful. Another kitchen invades hers with the goal of capturing her, and... Quine is killed, Anik gets her invisible blade, but she has no idea how to use it and really it doesn't go anywhere. She just has an invisible blade attached to her wrist she doesn't know how to use. I thought the warring kitchen idea was was really interesting. It's the kind of thing I would never have thought of in a million years. It's good. It's good. It is kind of, and it does fit with how the kitchens are such an important part and the upper lords take their dinners so seriously that you've got these factions developing below that. And you really get the sense that, like, the upper class lords have no idea of anything going on down here. Mm -hmm. But you've got these gangs of the lower classes fighting to... Uh, for the slightest advance and often just fighting to not die. <laughs> There's a bit of class conflict here, which is interesting, I think. At any given point, you could be uh, just spontaneously decapitated because <laughs> you annoyed uh, one of the upper lords and they just, because they got their thing and said, It's boring! Oh no, not this again. Have the chef executed. Ugh. I think you may have glossed over, but Anig's uh, big claim to fame is she has some kind of alchemical drug uh, situation in, in her big dish that like changes the eater's um, senses over time. So mm. like you're you're seeing tastes and touching smells and stuff, and, and they're like, whoa, this is awesome. Yeah, that combined with the fact that she knows what all the ingredients from the land below are actually good for, uh, you know. Right, right. I think one of the things is, like, they find a hedgehog, they have no idea what it is, and they, like, roast its bones to extract the marrow, which sounds horrible, and apparently is, because <laughs> that gets someone killed. And Anik's immediately like, that's not how you cook a hedgehog. Well, yeah, she relies on more basic alchemy until she harnesses the knowledge of how to trip balls. Mm. <laughs> and it turns out the Lords of Umbriel really like the idea of just getting massively high during the course of 50 course meal. <laughs> I gotta tell you, that does sound like a good time. <laughs> Chef Toll is now Anik's new captor. He's more sophisticated as Quine, but he's, if anything, more of a dick. He's very manipulative, and he's perfectly willing to kill people as well. We keep drifting further and further into kitchen nightmares. <laughs> I mean, we've gone from Gordon Ramsay, uh, like, who is Quine just shouting at people and murdering them indiscriminately. Toll is more... He's more sophisticated. He won't swear at you, he won't scream at you, he'll take your way to his private quarters and then poison you very, very horribly. Mm. 
which I guess is what Gordon Ramsay would do if he had like that kind of planning and forethought and didn't just scream at people. He's so emotional. Hmm. Treb and Sue meet a, a caravan of Khajiit. The Khajiit are kind of bandits, but they're very polite and honourable bandits. Uh, they make a deal, or they kind of threaten them into making a deal. They're going to be an escort, or rather they're not going to kill them and also follow them, as long as Sewell and Treb then go into a city to get moon sugar, which is an intoxicant to the Khajiit uh, that they can make drugs from if they want to, basically. Sewell then tells Treb privately he has no intention of actually honouring the bargain, but Treb is beginning to get his self-confidence back and he refuses to betray their word to the Khajiit. Now, we get a bit more of glim here. I'll, I'll kind of uh, combine two chapters. He's able to meet somebody from higher up in Umbriel who is keen to hear about the land below and he's able to trade some information and then because he's been away exploring, he gets beaten by his overseer. Now, he stands up to the overseer, but still gets beaten, but the workers around him in Sump are very impressed. They've never seen somebody standing up before. And Glim essentially starts organising a strike around around the workers of the Sump. And, you know, lizard communism is a goal. <laughs> he suggests that they seize the means of reincarnation. Yes, essentially that. That I, I was... I. I was searching for something and you found it. That was beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. And because he's made all these new allies now, he can now pass messages to Anig. Now, back to Anig and Sleer, who is the person Anig was working with. Sleer's been taken with her to a new kitchen and we get a bit of homoerotic tension between the two. They're given some steam baths and then some cold baths and then more steam baths. And then we get a really strange thing. Anig is interrogated again about the world below and the chef is amazed and disgusted by the concept of sex being used to make babies. <laughs> well, I, yeah, it's like, you came out like a parasite. Oh, that's so disgusting. Yeah, the, the chef is like, uh, you came out how big? Yeah, and she, she has to explain that, like, babies are this small. <laughs> and there's even an alien reference. He says something like, did you burst through the chest? <laughs> he seems to have a, like, some kind of, he has a disgust kink. Just, I didn't know was a thing. And uh, come to think of it, of course that's a thing. I don't know what it entails in the real world. And I think I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so... Treb, Sul, and the Khajiit are then ambushed by some former Imperial soldiers, now essentially little more than bandits, but Treb's able to actually talk them down using his Imperial authority and able to speak to the better part of their nature. You know, he's got that one-day-use perk. Mm. <laughs> Voice of the Emperor, I think that's the Imperial perk, isn't it? Yes, in, in multiple, multiple games. They go to next town. Treb tries to use his charisma again to recruit allies, but he's already used it for the day. So this time it just means an old friend of his gets murdered and the Khajiit have to rescue him from assassins. So then reveals his actual plan. They have no way of actually getting to Umbriel in time on land, but he knows a shortcut through Oblivion. Now... 
Oblivion is a series of parallel realms or dimensions, each controlled and shaped by a Diedrich Prince. They're very, very different and often reflect the Prince's nature. I know ESO goes very much in depth, much more with the various different realms, but in the games we kind of more seen Sheogorath's uh, Madness Realm and uh, Hermias Mora's, like, Land of Forbidden Knowledge. A little bit of Mayrus Dagon's Oh, yes, yes, of course. Areas, but it's really just, like, that's just, like, a bunch of platforms and lava. Yeah, it's hell. It's it's a very <laughs> generic hell. <laughs> oh, and just to jump back on another aspect of, like, the weirdness of uh, gender and sex in the Elder Scrolls universe, mm. canonically, the, the Daedric Princes, although we're Prince is used, not a one of them has any specific gender of any kind. Yeah, indeed, some of them, uh, if I remember right, uh, Boethia uh, is sometimes referred to as male, sometimes referred to as female. Even uh, Molag Bal uh, is occasionally one or two of his or her epithets is like queen or something. Of course, that could just be its, you know, fun. And uh, Vivek, the kind of living god from Morrowind is very explicitly non-binary as well. In the game, more referred to as male, but in certainly the the in-game books, Vivek is sometimes referred to as female, and it's kind of, they're supposed to be able to switch between the two, as it were. Not to talk up ESO with all of its microtransactions flooded into it, it actually did win a GLAAD award for there's a character, like, the only openly trans character in the game who specifically mentions that there's a number of different ways that one can do transition, and not everybody wants to talk about it, but they, you know, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a ton of queers all over the place. I remember when I first encountered that, it was interracial married lesbian elf pirates. Indeed, indeed. Now, the Elder Scrolls is quite good with that. Um, again, I, it's a, it's sort of like, um, as you said earlier, Michael Kirkbride's influence. He, uh, he liked to include a lot of um, what was probably at the time very weird, but is actually nowadays quite prescient in many ways. Is that um, going to be a lot of like NPCs or is that uh, player characters that are like sort of role playing? Uh, that's NPCs. Interesting. Okay, so it's writ it's like written dialogue. In quests of various levels of quality, which I actually appreciate because they didn't just save it for the good quests. It's just kind of sprinkled around. Interesting. There, although a lot of the quests in there are good, um, unless it's just a fetch quest. Oh my gosh, there's one that's so <laughs> wasted in Eastern Skyrim. Yeah, I've never checked out ESO just uh, because of the microtransaction nonsense. Oh, it's awful. <laughs> Play it as single player. Well, the thing is, I'll give it this. The microtransactions in it are all shit. <laughs> Nothing you get from them is anywhere near as good as what you get from just playing the game. Okay. That's the only good thing I can say about it. But, of course, there are loot boxes, and you don't always need to get good things out of loot boxes to become addicted to them. So, there mm. you go. Right. So... Treb, Sula, and the Khajiit travel through various Daedric realms very quickly. We don't really get much description of them, but they get stuck in particular in Hercene's plane of oblivion. Hercene is the prince of the hunt, and he is in a hunting mood. And I really like how they portray him here, you know, the gigantic 
imposing horns with, well, stag-like horns, I should say, but also hunting horns, uh, which when he blows it is kind of a instinctively gives people a, a sense of dread, uh, like a rabbit in the headlights kind of feeling. But the Khajiit love this whole thing, and they are perfectly happy to sacrifice themselves to allow Treb and Sue to escape back to the mortal world. Today is a good day to die. Yes, yes, but like, wow, today is a... You know, I won't do a cat impression, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Today is a good day to die. That's it. That's it. So, back in Umbria, Sleer poisons Anik, but Anik is able to use her chemical knowledge to keep herself alive. And again, Anik doesn't really hold a grudge here, though. She kind of recognizes that Sleer is in danger of being killed because Anik is the new star of the kitchen nightmares, and Sleer is not performing well enough. I think that just might speak to a little bit more of the homoeroticism because it's like, you hurt me, but I'm going to forgive you. Mm. How could you have done this to me instead of like, you fucking tried to kill me. <laughs> First time I experienced this story, I was very disappointed that that didn't actually go anywhere. Maybe in the second one, I haven't read it yet, but maybe they get past the whole trying to kill each other thing. <laughs> Now, at this point, I'm going to be combining chapters and moving things around a bit because it starts to move a bit fast and we get a lot of info dumping. Sul and Treb are now in the crater that was Vivek City and Sul starts telling Treb where Umbriel came from. Quite an info dump here. After the events of the Morrowind game, the god Vivek disappeared and his magic was previously holding a meteor above Vivek City. With him gone, that magic started weakening. Sul and another dark elf, Vuhon, invented a machine called the Ingenium, which is powered by souls, to keep the meteor aloft. However, Sul and Vuhon both loved the same woman. She rejected Vuhon, and he used her as a living battery. Sul rescued her from the Ingenium, but broke it in the process. The meteor, because of magic, still had all of its original momentum, and it just crashed into Vivek, and destroying it utterly and devastating the surrounding country of Morrowind. Now, involved in all of this is a sword called Umbra, which has a piece of the power of the Daedric Prince Clavicus Vile, the Prince of Trickery and Bargains. Clavicus Vile was keeping a sword in his realm, but the Ingenium opened a rift to the realm. The sword leaves Oblivion, and Sul and Vuhon are taken to Clavicus Vile's plane of Oblivion. However, Umbra is a sword and a man. The sword escaped, but the man stayed behind and still wanted to escape. So he made a bargain with Vuhon. Vuhon makes a new ingenium, and that should allow them to escape. And that's what Umbria is. It's kind of like the ingenium is creating a bubble of oblivion and allowing it to manifest itself into the mortal world. And Vuhon and Umbra are still seeking the Umbra sword, but may have other reasons as well, which we're not going to in this book. The level of info dump here is huge, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it all sounds really awesome, which again fits right in with the games where you like you go somewhere and it looks like something cool happened or everything exploded. 
and then you find out how it got to be cool or how it exploded and it all sounds awesome, but it's really just some guy talking at you. We, we had 25-ish chapters of cooking and uh, hanging out, you know, in the sump. And then we get, like, everything that is happening <laughs> right here at the end. It reminds me of Morrowind, where um, towards the end of the main quest, you go to meet Vivek. And you have a long conversation with him, where he explains a bunch of the plot. And then he kind of directs you towards, like, a couple of books in a room with him. And it's like... Read these, they'll explain everything. And then a whole bunch of the plot and background for the game are just in these random books in a room. <laughs> like, this is who you are, this is what you're doing, this is why you're doing it. Just read all this now, take half an hour. <laughs> and the thing is, of course, we don't even know if that's true, mm. because he wrote it down. That's a good thing about Morrowind. It gives you these books, but they're all from different perspectives. And it, it the, the game kind of very explicitly says you have to figure out what's true or have your own truth because you're interpreting various different historical perspectives. I won't get into that too much, but yeah, that's certainly an aspect of Morrowind I really liked. If you try and make too much sense of it, you'll, you'll explode like a, an android in Star Trek, the original series. <laughs> So, Sue was imprisoned in oblivion as well, but after many years he escaped and eventually found himself in the service of the Diedrich Prince of Azura. She indulged his desire for vengeance and she's been sending him the visions. Azura also was one of, like, imprisoned him as well. Mm. Just kind of enslaved him for a while because it was funny. But she's nicer about it. She lets him have some kind of agency even if like she's just kind of laughing at him while he does all this stuff so it's classic slavery not chattel slavery <laughs> so in the ruins of Vivek city Sul is able to contact the spirit of his lost love but she tells him the umbra sword is not there anymore it's been taken somewhere else your princess is in another castle <laughs> it's nice to get some mario references in here as well <laughs> We start switching perspectives rapidly now. We have Anegan Glim using the new levitation potion to escape Umbriel. Sul and Treb are captured by Vuhon and taken to Umbriel. Vuhon reveals he has an ally in the Imperial City and he plans to go there next. Meanwhile, Colin finds woman at the center of the attempt to kill Treb, but he's horrified when she transforms into some kind of very vague beast. Meanwhile, flying from Umbriel, Anig and Glim realize they are becoming insubstantial. They've stayed too long in Umbriel, and they cannot leave it anymore. Sul then summons a huge Diedrich creature, very vague again, to fight Vuhon, and Treb and Sul teleport from Umbriel. It sounded, it sounded kind of like a Drew, but Drew are not Daedra, they're just crabs. Yeah, it's. I, I was thinking it was like a... a Maybe like an Ogrim or something, the huge guys with the inexplicable nipple rings. <laughs> but the novel is very vague. And you have Colin encountering a very vague beast, and then Sul summons a very vague beast. And I had to reread it to realize that the author is trying to convey two very different vague beasts. It all gets a bit rushed towards the end here, basically. Yeah, it's like a big race to the end. And then when uh, Anig and, and Glim 
de-substantiate, I don't know what you call it, um, mm. as they approach uh, the, the Tamriel ground, uh, I would have felt like that would have been a cheat, except for the fact that the whole book up to that point, everybody they met uh, is telling them, no, you can't uh, go back to the ground, you'll de-substantiate, and it happened to them. Indeed, the inhabitants of Umbriel are very curious about the outside world, but they don't want to go there. They all talk about, we can't leave. And that's just that. Yeah, I assumed that it was only applicable to them, but then as soon as Anaig and Glim uh, fail as well, they're like, okay, mm. this is our curse. The second head cook does tell them that eventually this is what's going to happen to you. Was it the second head cook or what's his butt, the head asshole? I, I, I can't remember who it was, one of the cooks, and they, they don't really outright say it. It'll just be like, one day you will come to be part of Umbriol as well. Come to think of it, like various inhabitants do kind of say something along those lines, but they never it is kind of um There's foreshadowing, but it's mm. it's it's it would be explicit if everyone wasn't so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a brief epilogue. Anig and Glim commiserate with each other, but they vow to one day escape Umbriel. To be continued in the Lord of Souls. Yeah, the, the second half of the book. Yes. Yeah, they just hard chop it right here. And having gone through both of them, it really is very clearly Greg Keyes wrote a book and then Bethesda just, or Zenimac, whoever was in charge of it just said, well, if we cut it in half, we can sell it twice. Del Rey books. I mean, Del Rey's put out good stuff. I don't know why they would just take a book and make it stop. It just <laughs> stops. It doesn't end. It stops. And the structure is so weird. Um, like I've kind of said, you you spend so much time with a Negan Glim, and then around a third of the way through the book, Treb is suddenly a main character and getting as much screen time or page time, I guess, as the others. Colin is theoretically a main character as well, but I think he has like four chapters total. I mean, structurally, it's a mess, but I think that the way that characters are introduced seemingly late into a, the book works better in a longer book mm. <laughs> because it's a smaller percentage of time before you get there. It has more time to sort of develop and snowball. Yeah, part of me wonders if the Colin story was actually maybe supposed to be like its own standalone sequel or maybe prequel or something, and then and then they're like, oh, what if we just like kind of cut these into each other and continually like intersperse stuff? Because Collins doesn't have too much connection to the rest of the plot. I mean, they might have just written a bunch of side quests and stuff, and like this didn't make it into a game. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it just it seems like that you took a few lore books and then just shuffled the pages together and just said, here you go. Hmm. It's it's kind of like. You get the impression it's going for Game of Thrones with the various different perspectives, but it doesn't quite have that pacing of Game of Thrones where you're constantly going between the different characters. So there's a real variety of it. Like I said, like you spend like the first third of the book with a Negan Glenn, and then by that point when another perspective character comes in, you've forgotten that the 
book has multiple perspectives. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very confusing. And when I tried to understand it as a single narrative, it does it doesn't work. It doesn't work as a single narrative. It's a bunch of narratives that overlap. I was looking at some reviews and I found a couple that made me laugh. People don't get this. I'm not going to give this, say that this book is good. I'm saying I like it. Hmm. It's not good. It has good elements. I think it could have been a couple of good shorts. It could have been a really good short story collection hmm. around this. But here's some people that don't get what they're reading. To put it simply, it was like a really badly written fan fiction about the Elder Scrolls games. <laughs> a really badly written one. The dialogue was very modern for being set in a medieval world. The characters were bland, and it paid me to read a paragraph each time I tried to pick it up and read a bit more. Okay, to say that this is a, a badly written fan fiction is to say that you think that the games are amazingly written. <laughs> to say that the dialogue is very modern for being set in a more medieval world is to say you haven't played the games. Mm, that's it, it immediately what I thought when I heard that. <laughs> From an Audible review, the narrator gives each character as much distinction as he can, but since there are so many of them, it's still impossible for me to keep track. There's like 12 characters! Yeah, I, I mean, if anything, I would say this book kind of needed more characters. <laughs> I've gone over plot summaries, like, look at them, and I'm like, wait a minute, the plot is such a small part of this game, this, this book. See, I almost, I said game, because <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a book. The plot is a teeny weeny part of this. If you just took the plot out, it is a few chapters long. Most of it is walking and cooking and griping. But again, that's an Elder Scrolls adventure right there, is walking standing in a place and like clicking on things in a menu and then listening to people gripe. I would completely agree with that actually. I, I think it's a good adaptation of both what the game actually is but also kind of the spirit of the game. It's difficult to explain but it's like when you're playing Morrowind you get a quest say in main starting city Balmorer and it'll be to go find a skull in a tomb and you spend ages walking around trying to find a skull because there aren't any markers or anything. You eventually find a tomb and then you start fighting and at this point you're really low level so most of the time you're just missing but you eventually get through the tomb and then you find a book at the bottom of it and it's called the 12th Sermon of the Vic and you read it and the book is as if somebody's taken LSD and then decided to rewrite the Bible. And in particular, the really weird parts of the Bible they cut out because they were too weird. Too weird for revelation. And you read that book, and then you're like, what actually has just happened? I've not done anything, and suddenly I have all this esoteric knowledge that I didn't expect to have. And it sounds like I'm being negative, but I actually really love this. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts about that game. It's an incredibly bizarre experience. Mm. And I actually find it to be one of the best horror games there is because most of the time you're you're it's very slow, it's very calm and and then all of a sudden 
something with no face, and another one with where the no face was has a tentacle come up and start slapping you, and you're in the middle of a desert, and they just appear, and like come running over a hill, and just start slapping you, and then you run to go hide in a tomb, and then like Cthulhu comes out, and it's uh one of the most bizarre experiences and then you just end up at the like as an inside joke to people who've played it because i don't want to spoil the thing a khajiit fur skirt this book is nothing in confusion and weirdness compared to even skyrim hmm. yeah i was gonna say when I, when i play skyrim you know I, I usually do a stealth build and so i will often just be in a kitchen and you can hear the npcs just chattering about amongst each other and it plays out a lot like this book that's the thing. I like this book because of how much it is weird, unexpected digressions and how this is a fantasy novel about a floating city that creates an army of zombies. And approximately 50% of it is about cooking. <laughs> yeah, it's genuinely, like, relaxing and upsetting. <laughs> like Morrowind. A lot of the time you're cooking and walking and practicing your spells on crabs and then all of a sudden vampires come up or a, a thing made out of chunks of flesh and bone destroy all of your strength and you can't move. <laughs> the The book also sometimes goes into these like strangely poetic passages uh, like when it describes how Glim as a Argonian thinks about the passage of time mm. and and you know their race just doesn't perceive time the way that uh you know humans or humanoids do the book just starts explaining some of that stuff and it's like this is so weird but like awesome <laughs> mm. no i i completely this, agree it captures the elder scrolls universe better than most of the games because the again the universe is bizarre and interesting and big and full of empty space much like the world is genuinely just full of empty space that you go through on your way to the next event. Mm -hmm. But it captures it better than uh, like Daggerfall, which is largely banking and building boats and wandering through tunnels. That's the one that's like almost completely procedurally generated. So it's the world map is gigantic. Like it's one of the biggest maps ever, if I remember right, in a video game. But it's like, it's very repetitive and it takes you ages if you want to actually travel anywhere. I had a podcast that lasted a year and a half every week called Walking to Daggerfall. And the goal was to walk across the Iliac Bay from one end all the way around back to the city of Daggerfall. We got about a third of the way there in a year. <laughs> I can believe it. I can believe it. And he's just walking across a desert and every once in a while I'd say like, oh, hang on a second. And I just slap a centaur in the face for a while. I, I think we better leave it there. This this is me under control. <laughs> I'm clamping my mouth shut this entire time. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us there at Gretchen. Do you have anything you want to plug? Any links or anything like that? I've plugged everything up top. I don't really have anything to link to. If you have me back for the next one, maybe I'll have a link to the big old cheese. We are planning on uh, rewatching a couple movies and burning through a few episodes. Uh, again, first we're going to do a, a pilot. I may send y'all the, the, the pilot when I'm done putting it together. Oh, yeah, good. please. Uh, but it's like my, 
my very soft-spoken, laid-back wife and I, basically, I will be ranting and raving <laughs> as she tries to keep up with my insanity. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you very much, Gretchen, for joining us. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Daniel, for producing and editing and coming on as well. We'll catch you again sometime, and uh, hope you've enjoyed this, and thank you for indulging me as I went on. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> thank you for putting up with my, my verbosity. <laughs> I'll catch you again. Thank you very much. Peace. <laughs>